You're listening to the Education Policy Podcast for England from Voice Community Education and Early Years with Martin and Rob. In this episode, we bring you what we hope will be some of the final COVID updates, and we share some of the recent topics of our discussions with the Department for Education. We bring you news about the Support Staff Pay Award in our Good News feed. We look at job applications, CV writing, and preparing for interview in Your Working Life, and we bust those any other reasonable task myths. Hello and welcome along to the March episode of the Education Policy Podcast for England. Thanks to those of you who already subscribe. The best way to get this podcast straight to your device is to hit the subscribe button and look forward to every podcast being available to you as soon as it's published. All right, so straight into the here and now. Uh, And as you said uh, a few moments ago, Martin, we do need to start with a small COVID update. At the time of recording, which uh, is the 18th of March, we're still waiting for the living with COVID guidance. Um, Education and early years settings need clear guidance. We've been saying that for a really long time. And they need to keep staff, children and their families safe. That is so important. It applies to every workplace and it also applies to schools, of course, as workplaces, not just places of education. Cases are rising again. COVID cases are rising. We are aware of some schools that are not asking their staff to isolate any longer. What can you give us an update on, on COVID today? As you've said, cases are rising again and we have been raising our concerns with the government that with the removal of testing, particularly free lateral flow tests, Uh, from the beginning of April, we're not going to have a way to be able to track and manage this. We've written, together with some of the other unions, to the Secretary of State to raise our concerns about the removal of free testing kits for staff and pupils who might be symptomatic, but also to raise concerns about how we identify pupils and staff who have got COVID if they are asymptomatic. We think that the only way that we can do this is to stagger a little bit more the with withdrawal of testing so that we can continue to ensure that our our schools, our nurseries, our earlier settings are as safe as they can be for as many people as possible. And also that will prevent people from being unnecessarily absent from work if yeah. they've got a regular cold because the symptoms are remarkably similar. Am I right in thinking that the uh, lateral flow tests or the, the provision of free lateral flow tests is being removed from the 1st of April? From the 1st of April, not in special schools. Special schools retain that, that provision because of the identification of the children who attend special schools has been particularly vulnerable and so there is special provision for them in order to protect them at this time but lateral flow tests will no longer be available for schools to order for free and they'll no longer be available for the public to get for free from chemists and pharmacists. Some pharmacists are making lateral flow tests available to purchase, Boots has already begun to do this but obviously we know that these changes will impact those typically who are younger in lower paid or insecure work because they they will be unable to access these paid-for tests. So we've prepared a joint letter, haven't we, with other unions? Yeah, so like I said, we've prepared a joint letter with the other unions to the Secretary of State to raise our concerns about the withdrawal of testing for both symptomatic and asymptomatic staff and pupils. So without that firm government guidance on this, we're urging all early years and education employers and staff to be cautious, maintain those sensible and proportionate measures, including paid sick leave for COVID cases, 
Those who want to wear appropriate face coverings should be permitted to do so. That goes for students and staff. Absolutely. And if you do have COVID cases in your school and you feel vulnerable uh, or you have vulnerable people at home you're trying to look after, you know, talk to your line manager about what could be done to make sure that everyone is kept safe. And if members want to read the letters that we have sent to the Secretary of State, they are available to see on our website. So, Martin, as our head of policy, you've you've uh, submitted a number of official responses this month to the Department for Education. Do you want to tell us more? So, the Department for Education regularly sets out policy issues that they wish to consult upon. And over the last few months, we have been engaging with the Department for Education, along with other stakeholders, and submitting responses on behalf of the union, on behalf of our members. We've had several members engage with us through the e-focus groups, and together we have put forward our official responses on the proposed changes to keeping children safe in education, on the proposals to support behaviour in schools, and on the changes to teacher misconduct regulations. We've also submitted our evidence to the School Teachers Review Body to support an uplift to teacher pay in September. So the official responses you've submitted this month are, once again, keeping children safe in education, behaviour in schools and exclusion guidance, and teacher misconduct regulations. And if you want to read those responses in full, you can do by visiting the website, which once again is www community-tu.org and you need to go to the who we are section and then what we stand for section and our policy work is in there. Yeah, all of our policy work can be found in the policy section of the website where you can see our previous official responses and the official responses that we will be working on in the coming months. So just going back to the pay negotiations for teachers then, negotiations are still ongoing? Negotiations are ongoing. We've submitted our initial evidence and the government have submitted their evidence and over the next few weeks there will be exchanges of further evidence culminating in an oral evidence session later on in March. We will find out the outcome of the negotiations later on in the summer, probably in July, ready for this to be implemented from September. Is there a problem um, in terms of the process of, of, of responding at the moment that inflation keeps going up and the cost of living keeps going up even whilst we're responding? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult because when we submitted our submission last year, inflation was relatively low at uh, around about 2%. This year, inflation is running between 5 and 7.5% at the moment, and it's predicted to rise to 8 maybe 9% by the end of the year. So whatever we ask for at the moment needs to reflect not just the situation now, but the volatile state of the economy and the fact that it might change. We've also got to reflect on the increases in energy prices, yeah. which are going to hit some of our members especially hard. So we really need to see this year, don't we, from the government, a real commitment and a real significant uplift in order to keep up with the cost of living. And on that note... Finally, after months of negotiations, ballots for action by the three Greenbutt unions and a lot of angst, we are pleased to say that a pay deal was finally agreed this month for staff working under Green Book terms. So Green Book terms are staff working in support roles uh, such as TAs and administrative um, roles within schools. So just to be really clear, Martin, this is actually the 2021 pay deal, isn't it? This is last year's pay deal. This is the 21 pay deal, and that means that support staff will see an increase to their salary that is backdated to last April. 
The pay increase is only 1.75%. But as I said earlier, inflation back last April was much lower. In fact, inflation in April 2021 was only 1.5%. So at the time, this would have been a greater than inflation uplift to pay. It will be backdated to April, so you will see a lump sum of back pay coming soon. But do check with your employer to find out exactly when that will land in your pay packet. Yeah, it could be as soon as March, couldn't it? But definitely check with your, your payroll on that. So on to your working life, which I think is going to make up the bulk of the episode today. The reason we're doing this now is because it's around this time of year in education that I think people start to consider their careers especially as we move out of the pandemic now, maybe people are thinking it's time for a change, looking for a new job for September. So whilst the reason we're doing it now is largely because of teacher resignation dates, of course, everything we talk about today applies to anybody working in education. Absolutely. I mean, students on childcare and teaching courses will probably be coming to the end of their courses. So now's a really good time to start talking about this whilst they're looking for the first jobs. But of course, you're absolutely right. The information that we're going to share applies to anybody who might be looking for a job over the coming months or the coming years, in fact. So the first thing you're going to need to do is obviously find that job that you want to apply for. And there are loads of places where jobs are advertised. Make sure you have a look at as many of these as possible. Sign up for online job alerts. Visit the websites of places where you are interested and find out as much as possible about job opportunities as you can. So what some of the places that I've often found the most valuable in terms of looking for a new job is local authority websites, whether that's a city authority or a county authority. And then the other most obvious place for people working in education is TES. Yeah, right? TES jobs. Yeah. So when you find your first job, it's likely that you're not going to have too much experience if it's your first job, isn't it? That's likely. Yeah, and, and that's okay. What you will have is some experience that you've gained through your training, either from a placement or through work experience. And you'll also have other experiences such as part-time work and volunteering that you can reflect on as well. You've got to remember, no one is expecting you to be the finished article. And this applies to people uh, going for their first job, but it also applies to people moving on into a new career. Schools, nurseries, etc., they will always need new staff, and it's their role also to develop you. I think one of the great advantages of being someone who's just completed your training is you're kind of excited about it, you want to try new things, and really push that in your job interview and in your lesson observation if you're a teacher, uh, or any observation if that's part of your interview process. Absolutely. Bring this enthusiasm, use it to your advantage, and tell your prospective employer what it is that you've learned through your training and your experiences. Detail the challenges that you've faced and how you overcame them and how this impacted upon you. You might also want to link your experiences to how you can develop them and the learning outcomes of the children and the pupils that you're going to be working with because ultimately that will be how you will be judged if you are successful in getting the job. You need to think about why you want to teach or look after children or work with children. What is it that you're passionate about? What drives you? And what makes you smile about education? You really ought to make sure, I, I kind of think you should do this as you go along, you know, when you start a new job anyway, you should probably update your CV. But if you make sure your CV is up to date as possible, then it saves you a lot of time if you've not had a new job for so many years. Because whether you realise it or not, every CPD you do, every year of experience you get somewhere, 
it's something else that you can add to your CV. So even if you're not looking for a new job now, it's probably worth going back, updating your CV, keep it so you don't forget things, keep a note of those courses you've been doing, keep your certificates in a folder that you can take along to an interview easily and just you know keep it all up to date as you go along. And when you're writing those applications for jobs, don't just submit a generic application. Check the job specification and try to show how you can already or would try to meet their requirements. This shows that you've taken the time to tailor your application to the job and not just submit something that's generic. Of course, as we've just said, if you're moving to a new job, all of the advice that we've just given applies. But you will have some experience that you can draw on. Again, it's important to reflect on the things that you still need to learn, the things that you don't know especially if you're moving into a new role or a role with more responsibilities. Oh, right then, the interview, the dreaded interview for many people. Now, I've done several jobs, uh, whether they're in education or outside of education. Now, I've got to say, education interviews are comfortably the most arduous. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, in, in education interviews might take a day. You know, if you're going for a leadership position, it can take two days. So you need to be well prepared because it is going to be a high pressure situation. There's likely to be, if you're applying for a teaching job or possibly even as a teaching assistant job, some kind of practical task like delivering a session to the children, a whole lesson, a half a lesson, a 20 minute thing, something along those lines. And if you're actually a head teacher, it could be, like Martin said, two days. And one of those days could be a presentation on how you would improve the school or, or work on the school improvement plan and things like that. The whole process is designed to give you a chance to show off. It's an opportunity for you to demonstrate your training, your experience, and you should bring specific examples from studies or work experience along to that interview so that you can explain what it is that you can bring to this job. And first impressions are a vital part of this process. Yes, yeah, so be, be aware of that and, and dress appropriately. Consider your non-verbal communications, you know, your body language, your facial expressions. So I can remember being told when I was at university, if you have a telephone interview, smile whilst you're talking because people can hear that. Can you hear that? The most important thing to discuss, though, is why you want that job, why you want that position. You won't be the only person who's applying for the job, so you need to think about what you can say that will make you stand out. Things you might want to think about are what interests you about this specific workplace, why you want to work there, and perhaps most importantly, why you want to work with children and young people. Try and prepare things to say for each of these and practice saying them to friends and family so that you're comfortable giving the answers. One of my favourite pieces of advice I was ever given that I give to people when I'm talking about this is be yourself right because you want the employer to hire you for who you are and make sure that they impress you as much as you impress them it's a two-way thing you want to be enjoying your job when you get there absolutely always be yourself so it might be you want to prepare some questions for the interviewer right because they're going to ask you at the end of the interview do you have any questions for us it's always a good idea for you to have a question for the interviewer it makes you look like you're interested in their job in what it is that they're doing perhaps an appropriate question here might be how long have they worked here and why they enjoy their job this gives you an insight into the place you might be potentially working in and an interest in the workplace and potential colleagues. It also shows that you are engaged with the process. You might also ask about things like data or inspection reports, news on the school or nursery, etc. But be careful not to ask things that you could easily find out from a quick Google search or looking on their website. And I would also say there that, that if you've prepared 
four or five questions like I have sometimes and then they've kind of answered them all throughout the day. Don't just ask them again anyway because it'll make it look like you weren't listening. Just say, actually, no, I did have some questions. You've answered them today. They were on things like break duties, whatever it might be that you, you prepared your questions on. But you know, don't be afraid to say, actually, no, you, you answered them all. My questions were going to be on X, Y and Z, but you've answered them throughout the day. So the next step once you've um, you know got the job, you've been to interview and you've got the job, is your resignation and your notice periods, isn't it? Yeah, so if you currently have a job, you will have to consider resigning before you can start any new job. If at all possible, we would recommend that you wait until you have your new job offer in writing before you submit any resignation, because this will give you a little bit more security. And in line with one of our favourite phrases, check your contract for the notice period that you're required to give. For many working in nurseries or school support staff roles, that's likely to be around about four weeks. That's the usual amount of time. But for teachers, nannies, lecturers, possibly finance staff as well, it could be much longer. Teachers tends to be uh, a half a term. For head teachers, it's double that and likely to be as long as one full term. Absolutely. When submitting your notice, it's important to be brief, but to be clear. It needs to say that you're leaving it must say when your last working day will be and it should say also when the final day of employment will be. It's important that you separate out these three different pieces of information and you are as specific as possible. Don't just say the end of term because that's a term that might be misinterpreted. And as well, don't forget that actually if you're uh, starting your new job in September and there is a period of holidays before that, school holidays, the six-week summer holidays, your last day of employment is likely to be the 31st of August. Make sure you get paid for those six weeks summer holidays. Your notice must be put in writing. We would recommend a signed letter, but you might also be able to send a letter that you attach to an email. What is important is that it is received in enough time so that you are able to complete your notice period before you leave. So don't submit your notice in the middle of a holiday when it's unlikely that there's going to be any staff to receive that letter. Make sure that it is received in good time. And on that theme, I would just make sure as well that you get a reply to that letter, to that email, whatever it might be, even if it's just a reply to say, thank you, we've received your resignation, uh, you know, it's accepted, make sure you get that. So you might be asked to take any unused annual leave or holiday during your notice period. Now that's unlikely to apply to teachers, but it may apply to uh, nursery workers, to nannies, um, to other people who aren't on sort of set holidays throughout the school year. Uh, that's perfectly normal. The other option is that you're paid for holiday that you've not taken yet. And you must make sure to take all of your own belongings with you when you leave, uh, before you leave the building for the last time, and to return all of your employer's belongings, any laptops they've given you, any mobile phones you might have, anything like that. You don't want to be charged further down the line. Hopefully, as we've gone through those sections, we've explained a little bit about the job application, interview process, and if you want to know any more information or if you want a little bit more detail on the things that we've spoken about, then please visit our website at www.community-tu.org where you can find information sheets on all of those topics. And finally then for today's episode, it's time to bust some myths. Boom! Did you forget we were doing it? I did, yes. <laughs> right. This month's myth is about reasonable duties, okay? So I've worded it like this. My employer can ask me to do any task they like under the guise of, quote, any other reasonable duties. 
So what I'm referring to is the last line of your contract, which lists all the stuff you're probably likely to be doing in your job, all the normal stuff, you know, and then the last line is, and any other reasonable duties you're a manager deems fit. When you become an employee, the law states that you need to receive a written statement of particulars of employment on the first day of your employment. Yeah, that's changed recently, hasn't it, to first day? Yeah, first day, from the first day. And this sets out the duties and responsibilities, line management, arrangement, etc., for your role. But, as you've said, this list is rarely exhaustive. And so all employees will have some sort of phrase that says that they are required to carry out reasonable instructions. It is absolutely crucial that you check the detail in any contract, job description and list of duties to make sure that they are correct because we're going to use that later on to determine what it is that is or is not reasonable. Right, so that's my next question really is all this comes down really to what the word reasonable really means here. Yeah, so a reasonable act, according to the legal dictionary, is one which might fairly and properly be required of you as a worker. It does place limits, though. For example, you need to be properly trained or qualified in order to do some duties. You need to be properly resourced, equipped, maybe clothed in the correct way in order to do other duties. So this phrase of what is reasonable does have limits, and you need to be able to explain why it is that something is reasonable in order to ask someone to do it. Can I give you a bit of a practical example? It's actually a really recent member inquiry as a kind of see where this goes. I spoke to a member recently who's the finance officer at a school and was asked to help cover some break duties because there was a shortage of staff due to COVID. She agreed to do that in a very short-term basis, but it's become more and more long-term. And now she's kind of doing a break duty of her own in one space on her own that she considers not really to be reasonable to be in the finance officer. I mean, obviously, we're talking here about a specific case. I know, that's a a hypothetical, but... Given the information that you've just shared, ordinarily, a finance officer would not be a pupil facing role therefore we would not expect the finance officer to work with pupils directly and a duty or work such as that where they are supervising pupils is obviously a role that requires them to work directly with pupils therefore in this instance based on the information you've given us it sounds like that job is not reasonable yes it was reasonable in that emergency situation But long term, it's an unreasonable request. And I appreciate it's a really specific hypothetical, but actually it can probably be extrapolated to other, you know, the the reverse of that is we wouldn't expect a teaching assistant or a teacher to be asked to go and cover the finance office for one day a week or anything like that. And that's just a school, but the same could be said of nurseries. The exact same applies there. Absolutely, especially if you have staff working as kitchen staff, uh, food preparation. People working in kitchens have to have certain food qualifications that doesn't automatically make them appropriate for working directly with the children. And similarly, it doesn't mean that those who work directly with the children are appropriate to go and immediately work in the kitchen. There are hygiene standards. As I said, if you don't have the correct qualifications or the correct equipment, then you have the right to say no. And there's also an expectation that your workload is reasonable for the amount of hours that you're working, right? All of these things come under the test of reasonableness. Your employer has a reasonable assumption that you are going to do the work that they have set. You, as an employee, have a reasonable expectation that you will be able to do the work that is set in the time that is set 
for the amount of money that is being offered to you. And if any of that falls down, then perhaps you need to engage with your line manager, with your employer, to look at what has gone wrong. So you mentioned there about saying no. It is difficult for some people sometimes to figure out the best way of saying no if they really don't want to do a task or they don't think it's reasonable. Uh, We actually have an info sheet on this on our website in the areas we've mentioned earlier on. So can you give us a brief outline, Martin, on kind of how to say no to these things? Sure. There are no really generic answers to these questions or to others like them. And questions such as this can only usually be answered in your specific circumstances. So if you are in a situation where you feel your employer is asking you things which are unreasonable, it's important that you get in touch with us. But to give you as best I can an overview. There are some circumstances where it will always be appropriate to question or perhaps even refuse a request. These include duties which are not yours or for which you do not have appropriate training to undertake. Specifically, think about situations where you may be asked to consider administering medicine, for example. Mm. Issues of health and safety can also fall under this. If you are not trained and you do not have the correct qualification, then for you to undertake that role might bring you in breach of health and safety regulations. That could then put others or yourself at risk. It might mean that you are working in conditions that create an acceptable risk or might cause personal injury. And of course, if your employer asks you to do something which is illegal, that will always be an unreasonable request. Now, if it is an unreasonable request, you don't really need a reason to say no, other than politely saying, that's not part of my job description, or that's a task I'm not qualified for, or any of the things that you've just discussed. But should you want to sort of be be a bit more um, conversational about it and be as polite as possible, you're saying things like, unfortunately I have too much to do today or I'm not comfortable doing that task or now isn't a good time to me or sorry I've already committed to something else anything along those lines but really definitely do it politely do it informally if your employer becomes persistent um, and asking you regularly for this definitely give us a call this unreasonable request is is stopped it's important that we do make clear that there is always a risk whenever you decline to do something which your employer is asking you to do. This is particularly the case if the employer believes what they're asking you to do as something that is reasonable, even though you believe it is unreasonable. However, you are protected in law if you have refused to undertake an illegal or unlawful instruction. A tribunal may consider that to be unfair and under the Employment Rights Act 1996 you are protected from being dismissed or subject to any detriment in several health and safety situations. Of course you will need to have qualifying service of a minimum of two years employment before you can take a claim to the tribunal but some issues of health and safety can be raised by health and safety reps or by our union on your behalf. So I think really the only thing that's left for us to say is one of our very usual um, comments on things like this, and that is check your contract, check your job description, check the list of duties. All of these form the terms of your employment. And yet that last one will be about being reasonable. But look at the other duties that are there in that list. And if this seems so far removed from what your clear job description is, then it's probably not reasonable. And on that note, boom! And we got there with the boom in the end. We've bust another myth. (laughs)
And so the last thing we want to bring to your attention this month is our training courses. We'd love for you to get involved with the union in some capacity, and there are a plethora of options available to you. So if you are interested, then please get in touch. In case you missed it, in January's podcast, we spoke with Ben Richards, the education organiser, about opportunities to get involved with Voice Community. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it yet. Similarly, we're still recruiting members to join our policy forums. We have e-policy groups on early years supply workers, curriculum, teacher pay and conditions, higher education. If you're interested in helping to shape voice community policy, then please do get in touch. Email us at educationpolicy at community-tu.org. And finally, all the social media accounts. You can find us, first of all, on our website at www.community-tu.org. On Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com forward slash community union. And you can also find Voice Community on Twitter and Instagram or visit our website for news, shared content and resources, including the Help Centre, where you can find lots of information to help you and answer many questions that you might have. If you're a member and you need advice or casework support, then please contact your regional officer or you can phone the duty officer hotline on 01332 372 337. And finally... Don't forget to like and subscribe and share the Education Policy Podcast with anyone you know who you think might be interested. And we'll see you again next month.